This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Jody Mundy uh, is a multifaceted performer whose last work, um, Imagine Touch, kind of sold out, went crazy, toured, got critical acclaim, won a Green Room Award and more. Jody, welcome back to Triple R. <laughs> Great to be back. Hi. <laughs> so when you were a child, you discovered that your family were deaf and you'd not known this because, <laughs> and this doesn't surprise me in many ways because it, it, it's the, the when people ask questions like oh what's it like growing up as a the parent of a in a single parent in a as a child of a single parent family or what's it like growing up as royalty it's kind of like you don't really have anything else to compare it to so although royalty would be nice (laughs) so growing up as a, a hearing child of deaf parents i would also imagine that you had no idea that your family was different to anybody else until a particular moment in time. That's right. I mean, either I wasn't the sharpest tool in the box or <laughs> that I did find out at five. I was in my school uniform and in Kmart at the time of all places. Um, I had lost my mum and uh, the lady at the front desk had made an announcement on the microphone. And I waited and I waited and she said, Jillian Mundy, your daughter's waiting for you at the front desk. And it felt like forever. It was apparently it was only like ten minutes, but I thought, my God, I'm like Punky Brewster. I'm going to have to move to a new family. And then Mum showed up past the red light special amongst the clothes rack, signing frantically. Where have you been? And I said, Well, the lady had made an announcement, and she said, I'm deaf. You know that. And I knew that Mum was deaf, but I didn't know it meant that she could not hear. And they're really two different concepts because I, I never saw what they couldn't do. Mum and Dad and my family, we were like every other family. We had picnics, we went on holidays, we had dinner, we, we had, hung out. had arguments. We had arguments. We were like any other family. I just didn't know they couldn't hear. Like It's like I just didn't notice. I just – and at that moment my world had eclipsed and from then on – um, <laughs> things were different um, and personal in a way for me the show is is to, is to reconcile that um, that moment um, with an audience. Now in making personal you're you've obviously uh, involved your family in the work as yeah. well because any autobiographical work in, mm. uh, can never be just about oneself no. and if you are and I've seen it with writers who are saying, oh, I'm writing an autobiographical novel, I have to get approval from everybody I'm, mm. I'm writing about, that mm. can I use their real name, do I have mm. to use pseudonyms and so forth. Yeah. What was your family's response when uh, <laughs> you, you told them that you were making this personal autobiographical work yeah. that would involve them? Yeah, so look, I've, it really started for me in 2011. I began drawing pictures, just like a cartoon strip, and I thought, oh, I'm going to make, maybe I'll make a little children's book for kids, you know, who have deaf parents and... And I showed mum and dad these 200 drawings of memories and they thought it was hilarious and beautiful. And and then over time I started to write and more and more text and then I was like, actually... And then I looked at all this family um, Super 8 footage. My mum and dad made incredible films, like silent movies where we're all signing, mum coming out of hospital, my first day that I was born, my brothers and I on family holidays, mum signing happy birthday, like incredible silent film where you see deaf culture on film and then I was like oh these films and then I started to see my life was quite documented there's often been a camera in my face (laughs) like school documentary because I think people have been so fascinated by 
um, my family and I, it's, it's highly documented and, and over time. So you can see what, how people would view us in the 80s and then in the 90s and how things have progressed to um, Skype calls with mum and dad and my brothers and my nieces and nephews now, some of who are deaf, with this three generations of my family. To the, and you have to remember, I couldn't even call mum and dad when I was a kid. So through film and stories, and I, I sat down with my family and said, how would you feel if I made a show? And at first they were like, oh, God, here we go. But I think they'd seen what had happened with my last work, Imagine Touch, and um, that how important for me it was to make work about intersections within our community. So the last one was about deaf-blind people. This one is about hearing people who are native signers um, because in the community not everyone's deaf. Like, you know, there's other other points of intersectionality. So, And my family knew that this story isn't just our story. There's millions and millions of people like us around the world, people who hear, who are native signers, who come from um, the deaf community. And I wanted to say, well, this micro is actually a much bigger picture. Our story covers 40 years of disability and how things have evolved, how things have changed and how things haven't at all too. So with with consent, yes. So my family are in it. They're in it through Super 8 film. They're in it through um, interviews. Mum and Dad are... It's all there. They're on screen. And I sign to them on screen in the show. They've read the script. They they can... If there's some more challenging moments, we've talked about those memories. And in a way, it's been a great way for our family to get even closer than, than we were. So... Yeah, it's been a really amazing process. One of the things that fascinates me about the unique nature of storytelling, and I had this conversation earlier in the week with the artistic director of Merigong Theatre Company, who are based in Wollongong, Mm. uh, talking about the fact that the more specific you make a story, Mm. weirdly the more universal it becomes. Whereas if you try to make something universal, it just becomes a bit bland. But there's something about everybody can recognise the the quirks of family life, even if it's a family or somehow unlike yours, there are still resonances that pick up. So that, that intimate nature of f- focusing so tightly on an individual family mm. becomes such a, a broad experience nonetheless. Mm. So I'm sure there are people thinking, oh, but how could I relate to the story of growing up as the hearing child of deaf parents? It's you don't have to relate to that specifically, but the interaction between child and parent, that's a universal theme. Yeah, I think also um, we all play roles in our family and um, sometimes we we try to liberate ourselves from roles or patterns or um, expectations and um, personal is a lot about that. Um, there's Jody the child, there's Jody the adult, there's Jody the family interpreter, the, the helper, the good girl, the teenage angsty little shit and then the artist the one that's now trying to unpack all of these roles within um that that I've played in the family and how can this story um I guess transcend just our family but yeah go wider into those universal themes around um love um self-determination trust grief pain um and inclusion and much bigger things about how we're human and um, no matter how different we are or our quirks, whether it's our um, ability or sexuality or whatever it is, um, yeah, how can love transcend all of that 
and families still remain connected, even if there may be great risks of division and difference. Now, one of the things that uh, I think will be fascinating for people from kind of uh, hearing uh, background coming to this show is the awareness. You've, you've used the phrase deaf culture. You've talked about interpreting. Uh, and this is not a show about growing up in a family with disability. This is a story about growing up in a family who speak a different language. Yeah, linguistic minority community, yeah, who um, often as uh, misperceived as people with disability. So, yeah, this is all about, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's complex, obviously. So you have deaf culture and hearing culture. You have um, inclusion and then you have exclusion and you have ability and disability and there's all these binaries going on and I hate binaries. They're so boring. So personal is about how me as, an, as a child and as an adult... Um, uh, transverse all of these binaries and that it's fluid. The whole thing's a fluid thing. Nothing's black and white, as we know. Um, So this work is about going, you might see them as disabled, but actually I see them as highly um, talented um, communicators who taught me how to listen and they're better listeners than most people who hear. Um, So the work, in a way... um, Some audiences who don't sign will be going, oh, I don't understand that bit because she hasn't interpreted it. And then some deaf people will be like, what was the sound? She didn't put in um, captions, footsteps. You know, like there'll be times where the audiences are all on the same plane and other times where not at all. They'll be excluded and not knowing really what's going on. And that's because that's my world. My world has been all in a world of sound, in a world of um, sign, um, and I didn't want to... Myself and the team, actually, we were all just saying, let's not make this show inclusive and easy for everyone. Let's make our audiences work um, because then they really get a sense of um, how much work it does take to make everyone on the same plane and that was my role in the family. Yeah, moving um, between two worlds that's is, right. can be draining. That's yeah. it. So, yeah. And we reveal that. We show that. It's not something that we go, hey, well, that, that was easy. We'll make it captioned and signed. No, no, no. At times it's captioned. At times it's not. At times it's interpreted. At times it's not. So it's showing, um, yeah, the effort. No different to visiting any other family uh, where... Kind of conversation might slip from English into Greek, for example, it, or from English it. into Vietnamese. But what's exciting in that is the artistic forms that have come out of it. So there's a virtual interpreter, so it's a hologram <laughs> of me interpreting myself, but then I sometimes my hologram doesn't want to interpret for me, and I'm like, why in interpreting? So we use the forms in that way. We have text and captioning, but it's in the whole set, and it appears all over the stage, not just in one spot. Um and, yeah, the way we've worked with the aesthetics of access, which can be really daggy, you know, oh, we'll have the interpreter on the stage in black or the captions on the side. And cause, this so, is we work with those aesthetics and make them look quite cool. Because so often those <laughs> kind of aesthetic God. elements are added at the last minute. Yeah, that's As opposed right. to integrated yeah, into yeah, the show from, yeah. the, from the bedrock. That's right. We embrace it. So the whole aesthetic is based in, like, teletext from the 80s, really daggy kind of captioning but it's all in the work and part of what our culture is so um yeah we celebrate it so uh, yeah the design's great the design's by Jen Hector who's amazing and Reen Hinckley's doing all the multimedia um Madeline Flynn Tim Humphrey 
incredible with their sound conceptual ideas um you know we're using directional speakers and all sorts of really cool things where it reminds you what it means to listen we have moments just about that which aren't translated (laughs) for deaf audiences it's like tough that's you ain't got that bit this time (laughs) and i'm not going to tell you um (laughs) whereas in the past i would have um, but this time, not. Jody, thank you so much for coming in. Always a pleasure to catch up. Always a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> I'm joined in the studio now by choreographer Stephanie Lake, uh, whose company, the Stephanie Lake Company, have a new work being presented in association with CultureLink Singapore and Darabin Arts Speakeasy. It's called Replica. Stephanie Lake, welcome back to Triple R. Oh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Lovely to catch up with you again. Yes, you too. You've been rather busy of late. You've been kind of making work for ballet companies and dance companies in New Zealand. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, the ballet company commission was my first ever commission from a major classical company so that felt like a real moment for me it was really really daunting and scary but I I think I acquitted myself I've heard good it things. went very well yeah <laughs> but it was really scary I can I'm not surprised yeah. I mean adapting your choreographic vocabulary a very contemporary kind of style of dance to a, a formal ballet company yes. with and with everything that goes with that because I I know of other contemporary choreographers who've gone to make work on ballet dancers yes. and kind of struggled because the the dancers have felt that they were taking the piss or yeah kind of yeah absolutely oh it can go so wrong uh, from both sides but I actually I had a brilliant time I was really thrilled to have the opportunity and the dancers were really on board with me I was yeah I was really pleasantly surprised they were really up for doing something new. And they really contributed a lot and it, it went really well. The first day was, was pretty scary though. I went into the studio and they were in their point shoes, ballet skirts, and I just thought, this is not my world. What am I doing in here? I failed ballet at VCA, you know, what am I doing? But, um, yeah, we worked really hard and made a show I was actually really proud of. Great. Well, Replica is the new show that's coming up from the 25th of April at the Northcote Town Hall. As I said, it's created in association with CultureLink Singapore. Mm. How did that kind of collaboration come about? Well, one of the dancers is a duet. One of the dancers is Singaporean. The other one is French. So that that connection, the connection with Christina, the Singaporean dancer, was was the instigator of the project. She won a choreographic prize in Singapore that was quite prestigious and she used her prize money to commission me to make a work for her, which is pretty great for me. <laughs> uh, she invited Americ, the French dancer, into the project and, and that, that was how it started. So uh, we brought on board this producing company in Singapore to, to help us make it happen. When was the last time you made a duet? It was, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this. It was Jewel, which was with Alistair McIndoe and Sarah Black in Dance Massive 2013. So it's been a while. It actually has been a while. And um, yeah, it's it's nice to return to it. It's a very uh, special dynamic. What makes it special? Um, There's something very intimate about two people. It doesn't matter what the relationship is but you I think as an audience you immediately make an asso- some kind of relationship association with those two bodies in a way that you don't it, there's just a different dynamic if there are more than two people I think so yeah it's, it's just very exposing as well I think you really see the individuals 
in a, in a way. Yeah. From a choreographic point of view, does it allow you to create what finer grained work, more delicate, mm. more focused work because you aren't working on a mass of bodies? Yeah, I think so. And I think, and I really love working on a mass of bodies um, because there are so many possibilities with patterning and all sorts of amazing kind of kaleidoscopic things that can happen with the mass. And I will be working on a big show for 50 dancers later in the year. So yeah, there's a lot of diversity this year. But but it, there's something about working with just two bodies or a, or one body that, yeah, you have to really hone in on the specificities of the movement. It becomes very nuanced. Um, you can't rely on the on the bigger picture so much. It's really about um, that, that relationship between the two bodies in the space. And I love that. It, it, it's very electric, I think. Yeah. So obviously uh, Christina Chan, who kind of commissioned mm. you to, to make this, was familiar with your work, with your practice as a choreographer. What was it that she was hoping you would bring to the mix, do you think? I think uh, she'd had a great experience with Byron Perry, who's an Australian choreographer. He'd made a work for the company that she was working with at the time in Singapore. And so she got exposed to Australian choreographers and wanted more of it, basically. <laughs> um, and, and it came it kind of came through my role at Lucy Guerin Inc. at the time. I was I had a role there as um, resident director, it was called. And so that lined up at that time. It came through that opportunity. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been really good because I've, I've since, since meeting Christine, I've also gone and choreographed on the company that she was working for in Singapore. So it's, um, it's been a good connection. How long, as a, from a, speaking as a choreographer, who and one of the things that's fascinating for me about new choreographic work is that it is like circus work. It's made on the bodies of yeah. the performers. So it's utilising their unique physicality, their movement, mm. um, what, is, uh, what they bring to the work is as much part of the work as the choreographic ideas being laid upon them. So what was it about kind of Christina's mm. movement style and what is it about uh, Americ, the, mm. the, the French dancer in the mix that fascinated you and that you saw that you could enhance and bring out and, yeah. and connect with your own practice? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, it's my favourite part of being a dance maker is working with dancers and and this one was interesting because I think this is one of the first times I've worked with dancers that have no shared experience with me. So we don't have any um, training or common experiences with choreographers. That they, They've done a lot of gaga training, for example, which is, in, that is Israeli, Batsheva kind of style. So they have a, quite a different physicality to the Australian dancers that I've worked with, for example. And we don't have that common kind of language or... Um, uh, yeah. Shared points of reference. Yeah, yeah, those shares, shared points of reference aren't there. But that's been really great for me because it's it's shifted the tone of the choreography or the, the starting points that I would expect would lead it to a particular outcome have actually gone in different directions. And so that's really exciting. I, I like that and that's that's, you know... The joy of collaboration, isn't it? What kind of tonal shifts has it led to? I think this this one is quite tender. I mean, it still has um, lots of the bombastic things that I'm <laughs> into. All of my obsessions are in there. It is a really it's a it is a quite a high octane work, and particularly for only two dancers in the space, they're very small people. They're really lean and lithe, and but they have big presence. Um, but I think, yeah, the difference, there's a kind of a softness in the way they move, the, they melt into the floor like butter and 
but the thing that's really special about them is that they're incredibly close as friends, like almost like brother and sister. They're so close that they fight all the time and there's friction in the studio. They drive me crazy. But um, but that's kind of become what the work is, is about. It's about symbiosis and um, and symbiotic relationships in nature and and I thought that's, that's perfect for them because they are absolutely symbiotic. They do everything together and it's this love-hate relationship. So the work uh, is Replica, which we're discussing with Stephanie Lake and will be on from the 25th of April to the 5th of May at Northcote Town Hall. Now, as you said, there, were, there wasn't a shared kind of language and points of reference and experience between you and the dancers. But uh, with your design team, on the other hand, so working once again with the, the, the lovely Robin Fox yes. creating the music for the work. Yes. Uh, so there's clearly a, a long history and shared connection. Well, kind of indeed, there. yes, <laughs> you could say that. Yeah. Um, he's currently in Wales in having hikes in lovely landscapes, but I'm hassling him every day with notes and fixes and... Oh, I saw a uh, photo Interrupting he, his I, holiday. I just saw a photo that he posted. <laughs> on Facebook of kind of like a lonely house perched above a rocky valley or something in a crag. He's having a lovely solitary time but I am hassling him constantly. Uh, He'll be back soon. How do you communicate with him in terms of what you want musically from a work? Mm. I mean given your relationship does he now do you think intuitively know what you want and make and goes off and makes it without you having to give instructions? Yeah sometimes sometimes absolutely sometimes he's working on on something that's not meant to be for a project of mine, but I'll say that is perfect for what I'm working on and it gets moved over into my folder, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is one of the benefits of living together. Uh, but, yeah, it is, it's, you know, we've worked together on something. We counted them up. It's like a dozen shows now, major shows. So it's a it's a well-worn path. But but um, actually this this piece replica does have some some new sounds in there he's picked up some acoustic instruments normally he works primarily with antique synthesizers and um, recordings but um, for this one yeah there are some there's a guitar strum in there even so it gets a bit romantic it's nice I really love what he's done and it's and as always it's incredibly kind of um, heart pounding and Exciting. And what about the other elements of the design team, costume, mm. lighting? Yes, so I'm working with Paula Levis for the first time, who's a really dear friend of mine. Uh, she's done amazing work with Chunky Move. And she's Hope. costume? She's doing the costume. She's an incredible designer. Uh, and Bosco Shaw is doing lighting, and I've worked with him many times, and that's been a very successful collaboration. And we similarly, we, he kind of he can read my mind. It's great. He, he, and what he's doing, we're in lighting plot today. It's like my favourite day. Um, and, and I can see already what he showed me yesterday. I'm just so excited about He's really created something beautiful. It sounds like having that mix of new influences, ideas and people and established friends and partners is a really you know, both volatile but uh, but exciting because there's a, a de- degree of trust on one yeah. side uh, and an unknown on the other and the, the, the meeting point sounds like it's really fertile. I think it's really perfect, yeah, it's great. I mean it's it's great to have a continuing relationship with people because you can you can pick up where you left off and and there is that just a deep understanding but but having new people in the mix is so so excellent and and these two have just been fantastic the dancers have worked so bloody hard they are incredibly disciplined and that's been inspiring for me glad to hear it mm. now 
Steph, given that the Stephanie Lake company is now kind of that's your your main mm-hmm. focus creatively, do you miss dancing? I do miss dancing. Well, I didn't mean to retire. I'm kind of I don't know if I've retired from dancing fully. I'm open to offers if anyone out there's listening. No. But but a particularly high octane very demanding type of dancing, I don't think I'm capable of doing anymore given my age. But I'm also I, my focus is is totally choreography now, so I think you have to be you have to be at a certain level of fitness and readiness to to jump into into dancing roles. But if something came up that I really wanted to do, I would do it absolutely. I meant to stop years ago, and then I got injured on an opening night of a chunky move show, and I thought and that I thought that was going to be my last show. And I thought, hell no, that's not the way I'm going out. That's not my last show. And so I did another one with Lucy Guerin after that and then I did another one with Lucy Guerin just because I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't not. say no. I couldn't say no. It was too brilliant. So um, I, think, I think The Dark Chorus was probably my last, my last big major show like that. But we'll see. You never know. Never know what the you future holds. You never now, know. Look, as a final question for you, um, mm. for people listening who, who aren't familiar with contemporary dance and may have seen bits of it uh, and just gone, it's too abstract, too uncomfortable, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know how to read it and interpret it, it's not for me. Mm. What advice do you have for, for, for people who are perhaps open to the idea of watching contemporary dance but are so unfamiliar with it mm. that they're worried they just won't know how to, to relate or understand it? I think they should get out and see more contemporary dance then because it's not all alienating like that. I can, I think... I like to hope that the work I'm making is accessible to anyone and I I do think about my audience a lot when I'm making work and I want to make sure that it is... It's an experience that could be enjoyed by anyone. You don't have to be dance literate to to get something out of it. It should be a visceral experience. You should be able to relate the, the bodies in front of you doing miraculous things. We've all got bodies. We, this is the perfect art form for, for everyone, actually. Um, so, yeah, I just encourage people to see more and find the thing that they like because, in my experience, dance is, can be really exciting in a way that, that other art forms aren't necessarily. I absolutely agree. It was, I found it fascinating looking back on an old blog post of mine back from the day when I actually updated my oh, blog yes. <laughs> um, in which I went and saw uh, a Chunky Moo show years ago. This must be like 15, 16, oh, really? 17 which years ago. Oh, really? Which one? That's my remember. era. It was, it was one of the ones in the Chunky Moo studio. Yeah, um, right. Uh, and I just blogged about it saying, oh, I can't read contemporary dance. I don't understand it. Oh, really? Uh, and I just feel like a fraud watching it. And <laughs> now, of course, it's an art form that I absolutely adore. And as oh, you say, it's, be- good to hear. it's because yeah. I've been exposed to it often yes. enough that I can understand it, read it, try to imagine myself moving That's in certain right. ways and, and then even just sit back and enjoy it as an abstract form of contemporary art. Exactly. And what a great thing to enjoy because, you know, with the world is so rational and logical, how great to be able to just be taken away to another world for an hour or so. I'm very much looking forward to opening night. Oh, Stephanie yay. Lake. I'm glad you'll be there. Yeah, I'm looking forward, forward to it. To It'll be fun. there in the foyer. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Richard. Uh, John Buckingham has come in to join us in the studio. He's curated an exhibition called Chaos and Order 
which is a dramatic title, 120 Years of Collecting at RMIT. John, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. So uh, I would imagine that quite a few people are completely unaware that RMIT has an art collection. Uh, many of the staff at RMIT are unaware that RMIT has an art collection, but that's fine. That's what the exhibition's there for. Um, yes, no, we've been collecting in a very ad hoc fashion for about 120 years now. Um, when I say ad hoc, I mean very, very ad hoc. Uh, we've been hoarding for a good portion of that 120 years and then collecting towards uh, a set of guidelines and uh, goals for the last oh, 10, 15 years uh, with interruptions here and there um, where nothing was being collected at all or lots of things were being collected. So, yes, it's been a, a tumultuous sort of a history. Who began the collection and why? Um, well, look, RMIT began acquiring things simply because it could, I think. Um, back in, look, the late 1890s, uh, it was seen as a status symbol to have your um, board of directors and things having their portraits painted by, you know, some of Melbourne's best society painters. Um, and then to have, you know, the odd statue put up around the university as a sort of point of... Um, pride about uh, what they've been achieving. Of course, it wasn't a university then, I should say. But um, then we had a huge sort of gap of about 50 years or so where things dribbled in, but nothing much happened uh, until the 1970s when the head of the School of Art, Edward Lindsay, decided that he would start a collection out of his uh, school budget, um, purchasing works that he said were for the benefit of staff and students. What how they were going to benefit from it, no one was really sure. Um, but that was good. It was. It's really started the collection off. And uh, for about the next uh, five or six years, uh, they devoted quite well about a thousand dollars a year, which back then was a fairly sizable budget, and acquired some lovely, lovely pieces, which we still have today. Who are some of the artists who are represented in the collection? Well, one of the, the big uh, selling points of the collections, it really reflects RMIT's um, history. So there's a lot of former staff and alumni there. Um, we've also got, um, because we've had such an eclectic mix of people acquiring works, we've um, got some of the better-known artists from around uh, Victoria and Australia, some of whom actually have a fairly strong connection to RMIT. So among staff, we've got people like uh, Inga King, whose sculptures are you know very recognisable around Melbourne. It's one of the Centre Five group who dragged Australian sculpture kicking and screaming into the 20th century. Um, and uh, people like Tate Adams, who passed away recently, who's sort of the godfather of Australian printmaking, uh, really sort of set up printmaking as a discipline both in universities and around Australia. Um, people like George Balderson or John Brack, who never actually taught at RMIT, but who worked a considerable amount there. Um, and um, that's been sort of building on the backbone of uh, Australian modernism, which is how the collection sort of really came about as a single entity. Um, more recently, of course, we've been collecting uh, the work of more recent alumni, um, people like Emily Floyd um, or Claire Ray, um, and really sort of celebrating the more recent uh, people who've come through the university. So as the exhibition title suggests, Chaos and Order, 100 Years of Collecting at RMIT, this is, uh, you've, you've mounted a survey exhibition mm. uh, to show the breadth of the collection and the, the, the ad hoc chaotic nature in the way it's been kind of collected and assembled. Um, and it's, so it's a really rare opportunity to, to bring the highlights of the collection together because I imagine a lot of them have not been displayed before or not, at least not been displayed before. 
Absolutely. years. No, look, a lot of them haven't been displayed for years. At least half have never been displayed before. Um, certainly we've been acquiring um, works uh, in a very concentrated fashion over the last 10 years, so we just haven't had a chance to really show off what we've been um, purchasing or um, getting through donations. But... Um, there's a lot of things that have just been lurking in back rooms and in storage areas and gathering dust, which is a shame. And uh, we've been really looking forward to an opportunity like this to bring them out and show them to the world. Here's one of the things that always strikes me as slightly absurd about art collecting is that you collect art and it just doesn't get seen, which kind of defies... Well, this is the thing, yeah. yeah. It's... Um, collections shouldn't be hoarded away. It's, they should be put to use um, and... Uh, look, it's not something we get to do often enough. We Occasionally a work will creep into an exhibition here and there, but we don't have the sort of uh, facilities that somewhere like the NGV does to constantly have your permanent collection on display. Um, so, yeah, opportunities are few and far between, and uh, which is a real shame. Now, I understand you worked with a number of students from RMIT to, uh, who what, acted as sounding boards, co-curators, to, to bring the exhibition together. Look, I would say co-curators. Um, our, every Victorian university and a lot of universities around Australia host some sort of curating program these days um, and different universities will have students involved with their own collections in different ways. But um, RMIT has recently opened up its arts management program and we've had a group of fantastic students coming in and working with uh, me and the other staff at the gallery, um, putting together a whole range of aspects of this exhibition so they've been working on the public programs or on education or on curating as well um and it's been fantastic working with people who sort of have a range of different experiences um some of them have worked on exhibitions before some of them have worked on biennales before some of them have had no experience whatsoever but they've all got this passion and amazing ideas and it's been you know of real benefit, I think, to the exhibition. It, it seems highly appropriate that a number of different influences and ideas and people would shape this exhibition, given that the collection has been shaped over many years by many different mm. people as well. So it, uh, instead of one person's taste and aesthetics and styles, for example, uh, you've got kind of a number of people pulling out uh, works collected by a number of people. So it's it's a real reflection not only of the history of RMIT but of the kind of quixotic nature of the collection and oh, yeah, how it's been no, assembled. You can, you can definitely pick um, who was in charge when a certain work was being purchased. There's uh, certain biases that really uh, show. Um, the, oh, look, institutions, when they collect things, they're always um, a reflection of um, someone's, usually the director's, um, own personal tastes, and that's fair enough. And that's something that can be celebrated, absolutely. But it's also very reflective of, uh, especially in a university, you can see not only biases but rivalries and favouritism and things like that. That's, you know, all part of the history, though, so... We're celebrating that as much rather than sort of shoveling it under the carpet, as it were. And it's also an opportunity, John, for people who not only are unfamiliar with the RMIT art collection, but are perhaps unfamiliar with the RMIT gallery to go into the space as well, because it's uh, the, the gallery uh, kind of main entrance is on Swanson Street, but perhaps easily overlooked. It is. Look, we're in um, this very old fashioned looking building next, surrounded by these uh, giant, colourful, amazing, um, newer buildings by people, uh, architects like ARM or Lyons and Peter Corrigan, of course, did Building 8, uh, the original facade. Um, so it's very easy to overlook us. We also look very official and, you know, uh, very administrative. Um, but 
And, of course, it's a heritage building, so it's very hard to stick banners and things on the front. Um, but it's, um, we've got this amazing gallery inside and we're right opposite Melbourne Central, very near the State Library. So it's really easy for people to find us uh, if they want to take the time. I hope they'll be pleasantly surprised. The exhibition is Chaos and Order, 120 Years of Collecting at RMIT. Uh, it's on now until the 29th of June at RMIT Gallery, located at 344 Swanson Street in the CBD. So 344 Swanson Street, the RMIT Gallery. Uh, you can jump online, rmitgallery.com, for more details as well. Uh, and as I said, the exhibition is on until the 29th of June, and it's free. John, is there are there public programs and events and floor talks or anything like that? Absolutely. Look, we're running one tonight, um, which will hopefully be really interesting. As I said, we're not shoveling things under the carpet. We're looking at all aspects of the collection. Um, So it's a warts and all type thing. And the public program tonight is centred around um, Indigenous art within the collection. Uh, It's been one of the areas that was overlooked for a very long time. We're doing a lot to rectify that at the moment, but we think we can do better. So we're having an engagement session with uh, RMIT's uh, Narara Willems Centre and we're going to be talking about um, how we can engage with community um, more directly and use the collection to actually achieve that and um, how... Uh, people from community can have a more direct link to the collection. What sort of works uh, are being collected will be discussed. We have a lot of works from the Northern Territory and WA, for instance, very few from uh, local artists. So that's... um, Someone's going to ask why, I imagine, and I'll have to come up with an answer for that. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what it is. But um, so these what, are good questions that should be asked, so we're looking forward to that. And what time is that tonight? That is 5.30 tonight. So 5.30 tonight at the RMIT Gallery, 344 Swanson Street, Melbourne, for that conversation and the exhibition Chaos and Order running until the 29th of June. Entry is free. I've been chatting with curator John Buckingham. John, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.